People are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. If you find happiness, people may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten. Do it anyway. Give the world your best, and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nishant Hanch. Welcome to the Nishant Gar Show. This is a podcast about helping you live a fulfilled life. The mission of the show is to spread mindfulness awareness, and my job on the show is to invite world-class experts to extract the practices, routines, and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. Have you ever wondered if there is any connection between neuroscience and meditation have you ever wondered what is social meditation in this episode our today's guest nicole will explain you that and much more nicole is a neuroscientist writer meditation teacher and speaker she translates the promise of neuroscience and positive psychology for individuals to live the best quality of life she is dedicated to enhancing lives through a holistic approach that integrates development of positive thought processes cultivation of self compassion and awareness of bodily sensations with our environment her mother's diagnosis of parkinson's disease propelled her to study and research parkinson's disease launching her lifelong dedication to broad scientific training in neuroscience physiology and behavior at uc davis ucla and caltech her latest research efforts focus on the neurodiversity which encompasses the brain and body experiences of unique thinkers Her mission is to deliver accurate information so you can choose the best practices to live a happy and healthy life. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Nicole. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. While going through your profile while doing some homework, on you there are so many points that i found and we'll do our best to cover as many points we can there are so many things and <laughs> we'll see how far we can go i was wondering if i could start with something how would your mom describe what you do for a living <laughs> how would my mom describe what i do for a living i think my mother would say in her words that nicole uses her brightness to help others i would say you know in that most simplest form <laughs> but yeah are you comfortable with talking about your mother's diagnosis of parkinson's disease yeah i am i mean she passed she lived with it for close to 25 years which really sparked my um interest in neuroscience and it really her diagnosis really kind of opened up my eyes in a lot of different ways as a society of how we look at people who have neurodegeneration and in somewhat in some cases terminal illnesses and also the aspect with her diagnoses of of being you know 
over time losing speech and losing her voice in society. I think for me was really a space that kind of got into advocacy of of really helping people find their light and their essence and how to bring that forward even through physical and mental challenges people may be suffering from. Another piece of her diagnoses because she was my mother and she cared for me so deeply. Her main lesson, you know, that I always felt my mother taught me was to treat each person as if they could teach you something. And that foundational way that she really saw each human being as a human being transformed my way that I kind of thought about neuroscience, where I felt that being a researcher in neuroscience and studying Parkinson's, that there was a great disconnect of what was happening with the laboratory, um, in the laboratory and the findings, and also what was happening with people who talk about it. You know, doctors were kind of not receiving the latest insights for medical science. You know, one of her earliest diagnoses, when she found out, the doctor told her, oh, just get ready in 10 years and, you know, get all your orders, affairs in order. And, you know, that was somewhat debilitating for her. And at that same time, in that doctor's appointment, I asked the doctor, I said, well, aren't there things we can do? Can't she exercise? Can we do meditation? Can we try these different things? And, you know, he said, oh, it's progressive. It is what it is. And that was kind of a really old way of thinking. And at the time, you know, 20 years fast forward, you know, we are learning that meditation relieves pain. We're learning that meditation reduces anxiety and depression things that are cornerstones of Parkinson's. We're learning that diet and your microbiome directly affects your mental capacity. It directly affects the way people can process foods and get energy and medications. And so for me, that was kind of my, when somebody says no, (laughs) that was kind of my awakening, like, okay, we need to change our discussion around this diagnosis. We need to change. And more and more as her disease progressed, what I learned from a neuroscience standpoint was a lot of science, like modern psychology, aims to fix. And as I got deeper in my practice of meditation and very close to her passing, the biggest thing that I really gained from her diagnoses was all she ever wanted was me to be present with her. And that's what really put my path forward on how can I be a being that lives more presently and connect with the entire world in everything that I do. During the time of her diagnosis, were you aware of meditation practice? I was. I I was practicing um, yoga. So yoga was sort of my very first introduction to meditation. And right at the time I was starting to begin a meditation practice and transitioning, I 
I brought in meditation teachers for her. And at the time it, for her, she would fall asleep. And I said to her, I said, well, that's okay. That's, that's part of the practice. Your body tells you, you need rest, but I was nowhere near practicing daily as I do now. It wasn't actually until she passed away that I began a very intensive and dedicated practice to meditation in the loss of her through Insight Meditation at Inside LA with Trudy Goodman's work. And that, that was really the beginning of me stepping into the path of meditation. You are a neuroscientist and then coming or bringing this meditation into your practice. What connections do you see between neuroscience and meditation? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about meditation, you know, and I I look at really mindful mindful meditation as a subset of meditation, right? And I think that the way that the mind can take in information, so it's really information, which becomes our knowledge, and it transfers through electrical impulses, that we have the power to really call our mind. And from the moment we wake up to while we are sleeping, we have the choice on how we can participate in society. So for me, you know, neuroscience, I mean, when you're asking me awareness, you know, I think is the very first step into that where it comes to awareness of the breath. And when you think about the most simplest forms of a physiological response to the breath, that three diaphragmic breaths recenter a nervous system by activating the vagal nerve and releasing positive neurochemicals like oxytocin and vasopressin. Those are our trust molecules. They're essential for pair bonding, infant pair bonding, and the and also partner pair bonding. And when we have trust, our body naturally goes into the state of relaxation. So for me, you know, the simplest form of the very first type of meditation we're often introduced to is the breath is foundational and it's woven with neuroscience. The second part that I really think is critical is that I think about the way that we process information and I look at it in the circle of awareness where we have intricate interactions between our thoughts, our emotions, our sensory our sensory abilities, so our our you know five senses, six senses now they say you could feel gravity, mm-hmm. but and then also our action. And the truth of the matter is is that a foundational point is that our emotions are essential for us to take action. More often than not, we create thought processes and stories in our mind with an emotional context that is our related to our narrative. So when we think about meditation and we think about neuroscience, 
the fact that we can, for example, I always use this, that fear and in, fear and anticipation elicit the same physiological response. You get sweaty palms, you get a raised elevated heartbeat, you get increased blood pressure. And it's really up to the individual what emotion they're going to attach to. And I, I always like to say, imagine going into a surprise birthday party, right? You could have surprise birthday party and you could have the array of emotions that are continuous from joy to frustration, to embarrassment, to excitement. And it's really the individual's choice on what emotion they're going to attach to. And more often than not, you know, when I think about the space where people are suffering, you know, more often than not, people develop these emotional associations that correlate with maladaptive thought patterns and maladaptive behaviors where it comes out as, you know, anger or the, you know, the lower kind of more primitive emotional reactions. Not to say that anger or, you know, something that, it, you know, if, if, for example, you see something that's harmful to you, not to say that that's not a valid emotion, mm -hmm. but more importantly, that people react out of suffering rather than their kind of higher ability. And so for me, it's, it's really woven in the fact that we know that when people practice meditation and, and different types of mindfulness-based stress reduction, that there are significant brain changes that happen where importantly, the prefrontal cortex, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex really expands over time. And the dorsal pre um, lateral prefrontal cortex is very essential for us in many domains. It's critical for our morality. It's critical for our emotional valence, equanimity. It's essential for our ability to communicate effectively. You know, and it's it has this very important implication in us kind of having that equanimity and balance. Yes. You mentioned about breath meditation. What kind of meditation do you prefer now these days? Well, I am, I practice multiple meditations. So I use really the foundations of insight meditation, going into awareness of bodily sensations, kind of focused from Jack Kornfield right now. Um, looking at our relations with our bodily sensations, our emotions. And so I begin each morning with a meditative practice through a guided meditation. And then after that, I continue into a silent meditation of just sitting. But more recently, I have learned about social meditation through Buddhist geeks and Vincent Emily Horn and the teachings of Kenneth Folk, who originated social meditation, where it's a community-based approach of social noting through various parameters, where you can note mind states, body states, emotional states. And I'm finding that the social meditation, you know, especially in this time of COVID, is a very, very unique practice. And I'm hoping to expand upon it 
and use it in the practice that I'm designing for incarcerated women. We'll come back to that incarcerated woman part. Yeah, so, sure. Social meditation. I've never heard of this meditation. I have had amazing guests on this podcast, and this is a new term. Can we practice social meditation? Yeah. How so, to do it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm actually learning as as I'm training in the technique. I have only it's very new to me as well. But Kenneth Folk, who designed it, kind of really found that there was a space where he said, stop practicing antisocial meditation, where people kind of sit and, you know, sit in silent meditation collectively. And Vince Horn, who actually is one of my teachers, described that he was working with Trudy Goodman, where he constantly was kind of coming up against his meditation practice. And she said, you need to socially, she's a psychologist. And she said, you know, why don't we transfer this into social noting? And why don't you begin to start releasing these layers of suffering through communication verbally? And so social meditation is a very, let me see if I can give you a simple way to practice it where, you know, basically Note, you know, noting body sensations. So if I were to be sitting here with you and describe the technique is that you sit and noting body sensations go from anything from your five senses of hearing things to hearing, touch, taste, sound, smell, and vision. And so if I were to be sitting here, I would simply just begin to describe social noting as sitting pressure, listening, don't know. And so it's a way that you can go through noting body states, emotional states, and ways that you could go through identifying the practice. They're very simplest their very first teaching is they teach you just noting the breath going in and out where people yes. breathe and go back and forth in, out, in, out. And so it's basically where collectively people are participating and a beautiful thing that I've kind of see seen transfer into this practice is you can really visualize the impermanence that isn't only to you, that this impermanence that, you know, Nishant can be sitting here and have, you know, a little bit of pain in his ankle, but at the same time, be smiling and be listening and, you know, also be noting that there's, you know, the sun may be setting where you are. And so it's that impermanence of how quickly the mind moves and when you think about it, you know, you know, it's kind of come out in popular culture where we talk about people have close to 40 to 60,000 thoughts a day. That's based on 12 being yeah. awake, you know, 12 to 14 hours. You know, there's no way that it's been like an estimation and a calculation, but to pay attention to the fact that that's how many thoughts we can have and what constitutes a thought. So, yeah. So I hope that answered what you were asking. It does to an amazing extent. 
we have th- we have talked about thoughts maladaptive thoughts negative thoughts what could be the practices to cultivate positive thoughts in our daily life yeah so a couple of things that i really like to hone into is you know i talk about emotions and there was this fantastic study where they kind of show the length of emotions people experience and they found that for example an emotion like gratitude could last up to 5 hours sadness can last up to 130 hours and the reason why i do think and the reason i'm bringing up sadness is that i think it's sort of like having to retrain your brain of what of loss and disappointment and so the way that you could kind of really retrain the brain is by inducing more positive thoughts not necessarily lying to yourself but taking in the good focusing on a gratitude practice you know i highly talk about gratitude in the fact that just noting five things you're grateful for can shift your mood for up to 5 hours it can also over time spending 30 days introducing gratitude into your life every day that increases your happiness by wow. um 3 13%. And so it's really, you know, you have the power to kind of shift that awareness. And so that's one practice I I really try to hone people into. I would like to ask you what's your gratitude practice? Do you write or do you just visualize? Do you just think about it? What do you do? You know, I do it in multiple ways. I do <laughs> a, a gratitude meditation where I can sit and just silently close my eyes and think about things that I'm grateful for and let them come to my awareness. I do do a lot of journalistic writing and I practice, you know, especially if I notice I'm feeling kind of boxed in, you know, I I say, okay, write write an entire page things you're grateful for. And then I think just sometimes being in the present moment, you know, taking a walk, going into the grocery store, that there's an ability to have gratitude that I can buy groceries, the gratitude that there is a palm tree outside my window right now. You know, so the gratitude that I'm capable to walk. So sometimes the most simplistic things, you know, gratitude for having a doormat you know so it's really it's not it doesn't have to be you know that great gratitude like i'm grateful for my family and you know but it could be you know being grateful for freedom you know so it's it's yeah so those are the ways that i practice and especially you know i have a teenage son and teenagers you know that they they have their own mind and and definitely <laughs> when they you know they they want to figure things out they want to tell you how the world's going to be and and i say step back tell me five things you're grateful for to kind of recenter the mind and the mood of of what he has in front of him do you talk about meditation with your son i do <laughs> <laughs> and when he was younger he was definitely more open to it and now you know because he's developing and i let him you know i really do believe we have each of our own by botanical growth and spiritual growth that you can't force it on anybody 
but I do sometimes if he is stressed out, I'll, I'll just guide him through a meditation verbally and he doesn't really know what's happening until he's in the middle of it. What is that guided meditation practice you do with him? I begin, I just tell him to close his eyes and center his breath. And we begin, we begin to breathe. And, and then I just slowly take him through a guided meditation. <laughs> and if, so he sort of... <laughs> if somebody who is listening to this podcast, they might be thinking... Are we listening to a neuroscientist or to a mindfulness <laughs> meditation teacher? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as a neuroscientist, I know how critical it is. The other thing I do know for him is he'll say, mom, I run. And that's when I get into my meditation. And that's when I go on my flows. I do mindful running. And I, and that I do understand, you know, I understand that physiologically we're all set at different you know, we have different baselines, you know, and some people, you know, part of my work is I, I work with kids with ADHD, you know, and they say, how do I get my kid? And I said, sometimes it's as simple as just taking a walk and letting them be aware of their surroundings, teaching them just to listen, you know, can you listen? Can you hear the wind? You know, and, and that's enough. You know, I think more often than not, you know, so many people think, meditation of sitting at top of a mountain, right? And <laughs> and being in perfect harmony. The problem is when you come down from the mountain, life is chaos. And and we really need, you know, it's it's living in each moment, right? Of, you know, am I going to be sending this email and am I mindful about sending this email? <laughs> exactly. There is this Indian Jesuit guru who died in 1987, Anthony DeMello. He talks about that. When we talk about and when we think about the future, when we think about the next hour, we feel anxiety, we feel stressed, we feel we can do it. But when we focus on this present moment, it's never tough. That present moment always passes. There is no suffering in the present moment. No. It's yeah, just when beautiful. We think about the future, we get tensed. Yeah, because I think that there's the disconnect that and the illusion of control, right? And I yeah. think that's another point you point out is like with meditation is is our attachments, right, to the future and what we expect the future to behold for us and it, the positive and the negative. And if it doesn't happen a certain way. And, and I think that's exactly right, releasing those attachments. Yes. Nicole, you are a busy person, very busy person. How do you cultivate calm into your life? It's moment to moment. You know, I, I, I think I am a student of life as everybody is. And I think that, you know, Obviously, having schedules for certain things are critical. You know, I have a very pragmatic side. But for me, there's definitely, I know when my life feels that intensity and things do feel out of control, sitting back down, going into a meditation in the present moment is what grounds me every time. And and that's really the way. And if it's, you know, and, and, and I take 
a lot of walks. You know, I do a lot of meditation walks and it's even, you know, one thing that I've really practiced doing too is, is technology, really developing habits and behaviors around technology. I think because life can feel so overwhelming with information. I mean, we could be entertained 24 hours a day and everything we're taking in. And so with that, you know, my electronics go pretty much in dark starting seven o'clock at night, every night, and they don't return until 6 a.m. What do you mean dark? I don't, I shut everything down. Nobody in the world can reach out to you. <laughs> well, no, I mean, my father, I, I have certain, you know, family members can, but, you know, there's a <laughs> point where I don't check emails after a certain hour. And, you know, I do have a phone aside for emergency cases, but really kind of separating myself from that influx of information, because I think it can get overwhelming. It can. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about incarcerated women. I would like to touch upon your mission beyond the cell. Can we talk about that, please? Sure. Yeah. So Beyond the Cell really was, it's been a dream of mine where I was able to get a, an award from Caltech to start a nonprofit to design a program for incarcerated women that really centers on the practice of teaching meditation, neuroscience, and expressive writing. And the reason I chose those forms is that I firmly believe education, not incarceration, and that we have the power and, and the ability to change our neural patterns. I feel that, you know, in my research of what I learned, you know, 73% of incarcerated women have a brain injury. Of that 73%, you know, 18% of those women have had more than six, you know, traumatic brain injuries. And those are physical injuries. So, we're not even talking about the emotional scarring, the emotional pains that people are suffering. Emotional trauma. Yeah. And I firmly believe in that, you know, that these kind of programs of not only meditation, but providing people with the foundations of neuroscience where people can really understand what is a behavioral, an emotional response versus, you know, uh, a response using metacognition right? Being able to teach people how they can express their voice if they're suffering through therapeutic writing, teaching them practices like gratitude, mindful breath, and ways to kind of empower them in their being and, and really reach out and teach them how they can heal their scars and also find places of security and safety. The other thing, you know, in my research, you know, having met with Father Greg Boyle, who's one of my, you know, he's, he's a living saint, you know, he said to me, you know, a lot of people always say these people who are incarcerated are looking for community and it's not they're looking for community. They are pushed into this life by society and what they're living in. Nobody chooses a life of incarceration. They have chosen they they have become in part of behaving because they're suffering 
you know, they have these, these patterns that they need to be retrained. And I firmly believe that it has to begin with the individual who wants to be present and make that transformation. But I feel that meditation is, is one of the key components for them to be able to be aware and, and move into the path of freedom and liberation. So in this mission, we have three practices, guided meditation. Second is understanding our mind, experiencing reactions, emotional conditioning. And the third practice is creative therapeutic writing. What does this therapeutic writing look like? Yeah. So, well, part of it, and it's, uh, there is another piece where I, I bring in literature for them to read, where I've created a curriculum that's very specific authors that I want them to read and learn from. But most in, in part of it is to give them books. You know, I feel like mm. if people have books in their hands, that's knowledge is the one way to transform. What are those authors? Um, they range from Lydia Yuknovich to Maya Angelou to Oliver Sacks to Jack Cornfield. You know, I have a series of, let's see, I have, I have them all over here. I, I have Amy Cuddy, Susan Cain. Who else? Oh. Another author is Julie Lithcott Haynes. And so I tried to get an array of, of authors that kind of where I pick specific pieces from their writing for them, where I create a therapeutic exercise where it's, you know, a simple exercise would be tell me in one way that, you know, tell me in one way that you succeeded, you know, to kind of focus on something where they have 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 reached a, a place of of empowerment and to recognize that they can in the future attain that or you know tell me for example you know 10 things you're going to do when you get out of prison and so simple exercises to get them into places of hope and imagination you know we know that positive imagination conquers fear so if we can replace the fear mind with positive imagination, we can really create hope. And, and most importantly, you know, as I was talking about length and duration of hope, of emotions, hope lasts 24 hours. So if you can offer hope beyond the cell, if you can offer hope that they are going to gain employment after they get out, that they are not going to be socially isolated, you know, a lot of these people suffer from bullying, you know, for example, and to let them know that, you know, a bully brain has actually a signature. So how do we work through that, you know, and how do we, how do we know that we've experienced that, you know, we know emotional pain activates the same area for physical pain, pain is pain. So how do mm -hmm. we, instead of go to our pain stories, and how do we trans, you know, rise above and release that pain and cultivate empowerment, yes. cultivate hope? You say that these practices can be used in transforming other areas of our life, not just in beyond the cell mission. Yeah. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. I, I feel that it's really meant for anybody, but my mission is to work with this vulnerable population because I feel they need it the most in this moment. Yeah. And Nicole, what <laughs> have you personally learned 
by working on this mission and what has been your experience so far i think my experience well my mission is is that you know what i've learned is that there's still a lot more i have to learn you know i think and i think that you know i'm open to adapting the program to meet the participants at each time where they're at and really having flexibility and adaptability and to really allow it to be a collective experience rather than me as the teacher you know me as the you know co-student of life where we're through their stories and through their missions and what they decide you know how do we collectively repair and grow together do you go through struggles <laughs> while working in this mission oh yeah i mean i think you know when i started out it's it's been a challenge in the sense that the prisons have closed so i have not been able to get my program in so that's been the biggest thing that I, and when i was i've already run a pilot with a group but i haven't really be able, been a, i think my level of patience and i and i have to tell myself patience time you know it's going to and it's and it's taught me you know how to you know change my idea that you know potentially recording everything and if i record it it could be kind of taught across more populations so you know i i definitely there are struggles of course when you're trying something new and there's a lot of growth there's a lot of failure there's a lot of trying things you know when i first began the program i had you know 20 sort of exercises and i pulled out six of them and then now i'm kind of redesigning and i'm working on a module centered on forgiveness you know mm -hmm. i was really afraid to bring in forgiveness because i thought gee you know forgiveness is tricky and i It am is. still i am still a student of forgiveness can i ask you <laughs> something deeper yeah is sure. there anybody in your life you have not forgiven ha <sighs> completely forgiven i would say the the person that i have the hardest time forgiving is myself you know i think i can see other people and i i do feel that when actions have happened that i could see that there's a level of suffering within them and i would say that jack cornfield has been a pivotal teacher for me in recognizing the layers of forgiveness for myself for forgiving others in terms of you know he has this beautiful statement that in one of his teachings where he says you know you could be angry at somebody and not forgiving them and they could be all the way in vacation in hawaii having the time of their life yeah and who's suffering you 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 um, are drinking the poison and believing that somebody else will die yeah and and so i think that that has been really transformational for me and you know and and as you're saying like the poisons you know tenzin wangle ripache you know he's been another one of my teachers a bun teacher you know and he really talks about how anger which i think anger and and forgiveness are in a lot or lack of forgiveness you know are in alignment and that's one of the poisons 
you know, because I think anger gives you that justification. And so I would say when it comes to everyone else, I, I do feel like I see that forgiveness. I would say the hardest forgiveness for me is, is the judgment of myself. And then I judge myself and then I, and then I go back. (laughs) Oh, just about making mistakes or being imperfect or I'm with you, Nicole. I'm I'm super (laughs) imperfect. I do not want to be perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, yeah. (laughs) And this perfectionism brings a lot of shame. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's unjust and it's uncalled for, you know, and, and in, in psychology, you know, there's this idea of, of healthy perfectionism and unhealthy perfectionism and healthy perfectionism is high striving, but you're not attached to the outcome. So it's sort of like a meditation. If you think about it, right? Like meditation, you do your best, but you let go of the outcome. Unhealthy perfectionism really is the center of the self-criticism on top of high striving. And so that's, I would say that that's one of my areas. That <laughs> yeah. And Nicole, if you were perfect, you will not publish your book, Insight into a Bright Mind, isn't it? Right. <laughs> and if, if Jack Confield would be listening to this segment of conversation, he would say, I'm sure, Cultivate more self-compassion. Yes. (laughs) Cultivate self-compassion. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's a good reminder, Nishan. Well, you said it. So (laughs) I found that while doing the homework, that holistic (laughs) approach, you talk about holistic approach, development of positive thought processes, cultivation of self-compassion and awareness of bodily sensations with our environment. Would you consider Mother Teresa as your inspiration or your teacher? She's one of my, yeah, I mean, pretty much when I was a little girl, I, I would sit around my table and read one of her books. And, and I, I definitely admire her selflessness. And I think she also has such a complexity as I grew into an adult to understand her complexity and her personal meditations on her existence and suffering in the relation to being, you know, uh, a bodhisattva herself, right? One who, who really holds the world's suffering. Yeah. And so she's so, she's one of, absolutely one of my inspirations. And, and, you know, I keep a lot of her quotes close by. What are those quotes? Oh, you're going to ask me and I don't have them in front of me. One, anything um, that comes to your mind. Yeah. People are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are honest, people may, may cheat you. Be honest anyway. If you find happiness, people may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten. Do it anyway. Give the world your best, and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. And in the end, and in the end, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. 
So I love that one. Love it. So <laughs> you're talking about God. And <laughs> earlier you talked about spiritual growth and botanical growth. What is botanical growth? It's, you know, you kind of think about cultivation of different trees and different flowers and how each of us, you know, it's kind of about nurturing your own you know, neuroindividual, you know, how each of us comes into our own growth and our own time and that you can't really force a spiritual path on somebody else. And that, you know, I think once you start taking the path of meditation and, and you can't not think about the big questions in the world and how important it is that to recognize the oneness and connectedness we we're all experiencing. But when you do that, you know, sort of old patterns and old behaviors become less important to you because the foundations of a more meaningful life matters. And that sometimes when you're on this growth, this spiritual growth that, you know, sometimes people aren't going to match you on it and you have to have, the patience to let them kind of come into their own growth, or they may not come into their own growth in your lifetime. And, and that's part of their enlightenment, their, their, their individual growth. And so that's what I was referring I love to. It. I love how you explain things so deep. What's the legacy you want to leave on this world, Nicole? Mm, I think that really, you know, that in the end, you know, we're in this together. You know, no one is ever alone. We aren't separate. And, you know, we are connected beings in every way, you know, and I think the foundations of the bun practice, you know, really hit home for me in the fact that, you know, there's this illusion that we're separate. There's this illusion that we, you know, are these individuals. And we do have individual biology, we do have neuroindividual physiology, but when it comes down to it that we're really part of a collective, you know, and it's yep. it's our responsibility. Yeah. And uh, before I ask you my last question, I want to ask you where can people learn more about your work where they can find you do you where would you want them to direct towards your work yeah i mean they could go to nicoletatro.com or awesome neuroscience or they can um go to beyond the cell if they're really interested in the program that i'm designing for incarcerated women and, and they will put all this information in the show notes so that people can learn more about your work yeah, great. Awesome. Yeah. And my last question, it's your choice if you want to answer or you want to pass. What would your present self, what would your present self would say to your mom? Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you so much, and Nicole. I... Thank you so much. <laughs> and that <laughs> I love wonderful. her. And I love her, but she knows that. So, but thank you. And I love her. <laughs> thank you, Nicole. It was so amazing. Wonderful talking oh. to you. My pleasure. Oh, thank you, Nishan. It was a pleasure. And I learned so much from you. 
Thank, well, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. Okay.